Thank you very much, uh, Radar, for that lovely introduction. Um, I'm really pleased to be back at Oxford. I didn't know how long it would take till I, uh, till I got to come back, but uh, it's only been now eight years since I graduated, so <laughs> it's very nice to be back. Um, okay, so what, what I'll be talking about today is um, the issue of tolerance, and um, tolerance is, is a it's, it's an idea that is sort of central to the Enlightenment, um, central also to current political discourse, I think. But um, what I will be sort of pointing to is the uh, philosophical difficulties with that kind of that kind of an idea. Um, what I'll be saying is, in essence, that um, employing the idea of tolerance um, means that we have to give up on sort of a, a moral rationalism, and um, that's a moral rationalism. I think that. Um, for many people is still an ideal. And um, so for those people, like Rawls and even perhaps um, Habermas, um, this is, um, you know, this is, this is a, a difficulty. Uh, I, though I won't be talking about this too. In particular, I, I think that the, the paper will point to, to some of the issues that maybe are, are also uh, contemporary problems. In this paper, I'd like to investigate the role, of to the role tolerance plays in rationalist political philosophy. It is at first blush perhaps a little odd that rationalism should avail itself of this concept, since rationalism supposes that the idea of the good is available to us through rational reflection. This, at least, has been the tradition ever since Plato, and it does not appear, to later, appear that later rationalists like Spinoza and Leibniz departed from this view. So too, Kant and Rousseau, if one may count the latter, him, uh, latter in this tradition, Indeed, tolerance makes barely an appearance in Kant's ethical and political thought. And why should it? Is tolerance not the failure of rational reflection, the abdication of a responsibility to think through um, a, a thought to its end? Against this, um, we might say that tolerance is a political solution to a moral problem in the sense that it provides some sort of reason for res respecting other people's beliefs and motives, but reasons which are not fully rationally reconstructable by the agent. This is the sense of the famous quip falsely uh, attributed to Voltaire. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to death our right to say it. Um, I say falsely because I think your colleague here, uh, Roger Pearson, shows, uh, shows this. Um, here, the other person's belief is respected without being understood. This is the bracketing of value rather than an understanding of value. Um, if all this um, is the case, it should give us pause that two rationalists I would like to initially, I would like, initially like to take up here um, make use of the concept. In doing so, they implicitly express doubt about the rational capacity of each individual, even if the good was, in principle, attainable by rational thought. This problem comes to the fore in the collision between individual convictions about value and a generalized value is consist, considered to be necessary for the stability of the state. From the 16th to the 18th century, the problem of political authority was most often given expression through the device of the social contract, which provided a retrospective account for the authority of the state. Here there is a division within the rationalist tradition which can help us locate and evaluate tolerance as a concept. What I want to suggest in this paper is that the concept of tolerance was brought in by both early rationalists like Spinoza and later rationalists like Mendelssohn because both were skeptical about the full-blown rationality of each individual. Thus, the political context reveals the limits of certain types of rationalism. 
That is the question of the state and the question of individual rationalism, our, um, our, our intention with each other. Um, this skepticism has serious consequences for political philosophy. I will argue that without the prospect of a rationalist theory of values shareable by all members of society, the social contract cannot be a truly transformative event. That is, the social contract, in Rousseau's paradigmatic articulation at least, is the elevation of instrumental reason into something like ethical reason through which each individual becomes aware of her reasons for disregarding her private interests unless they are permitted by the general will. Absent a thoroughgoing rationalism about moral values and those capable of holding them, the social contract cannot, cannot raise us to a higher level of consciousness. We cannot become aware of our shared values of justice or the good as an overriding value capable of subordinating our individual projects and desires. Absent this transformative event, I will argue, social cohesion is guaranteed only by instrumental considerations. Let me put the point another way. The state, in its final form, must rely on the political idea of toleration if one or both of two conditions are not met. People must be able to possess the mental capacity to reflect consi consistently on the good or the moral law. And, and the second condition, all members of society must be actually, actually be able to reflect in this way. So they must be both capable as a society and also individually. These conditions are familiar from Kant's moral philosophy, but they apply equally to Locke's theory of political organization. The point, though, is that absent both of these conditions in the final or fully developed version of the state, the state will have to appeal to something other than moral reasons for its authority. I argue that for different reasons, Spinoza and Mendelssohn, though not Kant, must rely on instrumental reason to found the state. This brings with it the problem of stability since instrumental values are essentially subjective. Hence, both Spinoza and Mendelssohn must resort to the idea of toleration, which is not a supreme value, but rather what might be called a higher order pragmatic value or self-interest rightly understood. But this value, too, is not capable of guaranteeing a cohesive social whole because it, is, because it is not based on rational insight into the nature of the good. The situation changes in Kant's, whose rationalism satisfies both above con conditions and is hence both more complete and more flexible than the others. This is so because Kant has two models, the transcendental model, which provides a, a theory of human nature per se, and a historical model, which concerns the development of humans from a rather imperfect state to a moral state. Given this model, Kant can institute a natural law in the founding of the state and can accommodate the obvious human deviations from the principle which natural law attributes to them. Because Kant theory is ultimately quite different than either Spinoza or Mendelssohn's, I will leave the discussion of Kant until the end. The context of the debate about the founding of the state and its authority in the 17th and 18th century is, of course, religion. What sort of role should it play? How much authority can it exert? These are the two main questions. Most thinkers in the social contract tradition seek to limit the influence of the church, deriving rather any needed moral maxims from the idea of, the, of, the idea of God, rather than recognizing the authority of the church as a representative of divine authority. A worry about the rational accessibility of divine and rational moral maxims to the individual is, I will argue, a central feature of all social contract theory, from the agnostic in Hobbes to the devout in Mendelssohn, 
Locke again being the exception. The point here is that though Spinoza and Mendelssohn are skeptical about reason's reach, they want to ensure the possibility of the right use of reason should it in fact become available to individuals. That is, freedom of religion or from religion, whichever the case may be, is a central demand of both Spinoza and Mendelssohn. Okay, so now the first section uh, on Spinoza. Spinoza holds that not all individuals are capable of full rational reflection. This has the important consequence for the social contract that it is both essentially democratic and also essentially instrumental. It is thus not a transformative event of the kind seen in Rousseau or Kant. The state thus needs the idea of tolerance to retain the integrity it does have. Tolerance, further, is here taken to be, a to, to be a tolerant in matters of religion, hence holding out the admittedly unlikely hope that those who do see the good are able to act on it as well. The first thing to point out is the source of Spinoza's skepticism about reason, extending to all humans to the same degree. As Leo Strauss has emphasized, Spinoza's theory of substance and intellect commits him to a view that entities of all sorts are essentially equal since they are all merely manifestations of God. From this it follows that just as all entities are differently constituted, humans too are differently constituted with regard to their reason and power. Thus, if humans are not privileged over other beings, they are also not, as a species, each given the same capacity for reason. Some will necessarily have more reason than others, just as not all have the same physical strength, not all have the same mental powers. This means that humans, lacking reason, are, quote, largely ignorant of the order and coherence of the whole of nature and want all things to be arranged to suit their reason, unquote. Our perspectives are only ever partial. The imagination will seek to fill out the impartial picture we have of the world, no doubt placing us at its center. Whatever reasons we do have is thus limited and for the most part unlikely to produce true insight into the good. This has profound consequences for Spinoza's social theory. Spinoza sides with Hobbes against Locke in maintaining that entering into social contract is a matter of instrumental rather than sound or moral reasoning. Spinoza writes, quote, the natural right of every man is determined not by sound reason, but by his desire and power, end quote. I take it that this means that the social contract is based merely on instrumental reason, which is simply taken, um, which simply takes the mean, which is simply taking the means to one's end. Thus, as we all are all different, we all desire different things. However, there is one thing which unites us, and that is the instinct of survival. This does not mean that more power necessarily guarantees a greater right to survival, though it may do so in the state of nature. Rather, the thought is that if there is to be a state, that state must be founded on equal right of survival of all. Therefore, if power, perhaps exercised in the grip of affections, not sound reason, determines right, the social contract must accommodate the fool just as well as the sage. It must guarantee the survival of both equally. The social contract must cater to the lowest common denominator. It must facilitate the exercise of the affects better than does the state of nature. But how exactly does the social contract get off the ground? Spinoza, like many other political theorists, considers that the law of nature, that subjects will choose the better over the worse, instrumentally speaking. This law of nature, Spinoza contends, will induce people to seek peace and seek a preliminary accommodation with those around them whose power is either greater or lesser than them. Here we may adduce 
the Hobbesian premise, which lies unspoken in Spinoza, namely that all are vulnerable at some point, even if merely by the fact that they have to sleep. Thus, a law-governed society is better, is better than the state of nature, even for the most powerful. The idea that all are equally entitled to their powers and to the protection means that each prospective member interest, member's interest must be accommodated under the social contract if it is to come into existence at all. Here Spinoza explicitly affirms um, what was an embarrassment to Hobbes, namely that the Ur form of the state must be democratic. The democratic, of natures, the democratic natures of Spinoza's social contract, taken together with the generalized supposition of human ignorance, also means that it is intrinsically illegitimate, though not impossible, that anyone establish him or herself as an authority. The authority will always rest with the individual who has made the contract. Thus, you can't alienate your power, as in, as in Hobbes. Um, thus, Spinoza concludes, it is in the interest of the many to come together to form a state. Peace is undermined by the right of each to do as she pleases. Furthermore, we require mutual assistance and also cannot cultivate reason on our own. Thus, writes Spinoza, the people, quote, arrange that the unrestricted nat right naturally possessed by each individual should be put into common ownership and that this right should no longer be determined by the strength and appetite of the individual, but by the power and will of all together. But lest we conclude that, um, that here the individual gives up his or her power, a metaphysical impossibility, Spinoza affirms more explicitly than Hobbes that, quote, the validity of an agreement rests on its utility, without which the agreement becomes null and void, end quote. Hence the contract is merely one of instrumental convenience rather than essential transformative uh, essentially transformative of social reality. Utility, not morality, lies, in the so lies at the social contract's core. As such, however, it is subject to quick dissolution based on the effective inclinations of its individual member. Thus, Spinoza makes use again of the laws of nature according to which we seek peace and adds an additional clause to the contract, namely that of force, namely that of force guaranteeing the contract. This clause may be interpreted as a sort of higher order rearticulation of one's subjective uh, projects as when people agree to pay money to a charity if they fail to achieve their weight loss goals. People are thus necessita necessitated to follow the laws they have agreed to in the contract. But this is not transformative. This is merely something that they um, reflect just a little bit more on. Um, but there are also activities not covered by the contract, activities which do not pertain to questions of survival as articulated in the social contract. For Spinoza, among these activities is philosophy or reflections on the good. Though Spinoza sees religion as a useful means of controlling the masses, he also maintains that the true understanding of religion constitutes justice and charity and is essentially independent of dogmatic assertions of different religious denominations. However, given that most people will not reach the level of insight into justice and charity that the philosopher does, what is needed is a political system that allows freedom of thought to all as long as it does not undermine the state. The question of, to of tolerance arises in Spinoza in a negative way. He does not favor it since it lacks rational insight, but is forced to accept it as a reality because of humanity's general inability to get along. Thus Spinoza writes in one of the few positive references to tolerance, we must, quote, heal those whose mind is sick in the spirit of tenderness and tolerance after the example of the Lord Christ, our best teacher, end quote. 
In the TTP, however, he refers to tolerance as something superficially preached by the church. However unsatisfactory, tolerance remains the solution to the problem of an unstable social contract, given the masses' inability to follow the philosophers into the reflections on the good. That philosophy should be left to itself, and the people should tolerate what they do not understand is basic to Spinoza, but is also, um, but it is also an admission that the state and the good are not identical as in Aquinas or Hegel, for instance. However, and here, we may, here uh, he may be hedging on his instrumental interpretation of the state, Spinoza also, rather optimistically perhaps, writes that, quote, it is exceedingly rare for a government to issue quite unreasonable commands. In their own interests and to retain their rule, it especially behooves them to look to the public good and to conduct all affairs under the guidance of reason, end quote. Since the state does not know the good any more than the populace, the state should not be in the business of regulating the good. Hence, the official policy of the state ought to be tolerance. Tolerance, in other words, is the way that the state preserves its authority over the differently affected population. I suggest that Spinoza may be hedging on this instrumental interpretation of the state because, as uh, he makes clear, the ability to tolerate difference while knowing what sort of activities to prohibit requires more than instrumental understanding on the part of the rulers. The analysis I've presented here is meant to show that because Spinoza does not rely essentially on sound or moral reason to found the state, reason cannot also be employed to govern and regulate relations between people in the state. Tolerance between people is therefore needed. The sage must tolerate the fool and vice versa. Further, since Spinoza does not hold out hope for any sort of rational development and improvement in social relations, the government must be careful in its demands on the citizen, restraining itself from demands common but unrealistic, um, common un but unre with unrealistic values. For Spinoza, the absence of the prospect of universal freedom leads to a laissez-penser approach, supplemented for those who may, uh, for those men who cannot act on reason alone by an instrumentalized state religion, which aids them in their moral development. But because there is so much uncertainty about the good, the state of religion must be both general, concentrating on love and charity, and tolerant of the different interpretations that might arise from these general concepts. This is a natural consequence for Spinoza of human individuals' different rational determinations. Okay, now turn to Mendelssohn. In Mendelssohn, we encounter a thinker who, as a Leibnizian, is both committed to the universality of reason and, as a devout Jew, to religious particularism. These two positions, I will argue, lead to an interesting contradiction in Mendelssohn's thought. The contrast is not, I think, a matter of philosophical confusion, but of the unique historical position Mendelssohn occupied. As religion came under pressure from philosophy, it retreated into a universal, rational, and philosophical religion, necessarily rising above the sectarian beliefs about particular concepts of prophets and doctrines. In the time of Spinoza, this was heretical, but by Kant, Lessing, and Herder and Mendelssohn's time, it had become philosophical, if not cultural, commonplace. While Spinoza and Mendelssohn agree on much, they thus disagree about the central state of the Jewish religion with regard to the government of the state. As Stephen Smith has put it, the key difference is that while Mendelssohn cared about the state status of Jewish identity within the state, Spinoza did not. 
This means, however, that for Mendelssohn, the problem of tolerance arises in an entirely different way than it does for Spinoza. It is a problem stemming from a contentful conception of values an individual ought to have in the state. Religion, in its particular doctrinal form, is, for Mendelssohn, a source of moral and cultural orientation, while Spinoza restricts himself to a religion of reason which is based on the universal conception of love and charity. The need for tolerance comes from Mendelssohn's twin beliefs that religion is not just a personal affair and his unwillingness to agree with his contemporaries that particular forms of religion are merely stages in the larger social and political development, as Spinoza, but also Mendelssohn's friend Lessing, thought. Thus, um, Mendelssohn begins Jerusalem of 1783 with the claim that Contra Locke's letter on tolerance, uh, published almost a century earlier, the state can have a, a role to play in the idea of personal salvation because the temporal and the eternal are not separate. This belief is based on the metaphysical doctrine of immortality according to which each person is destined to attain a certain measure of happiness. Seeking to fuse reason and religion, Mendelssohn argues that the double determination of humanity with regard to God and fellow creature humans consists in the fact that there will be two types of authority which will govern human life. The authority of the individual's relation to his or her creator, defined as the church, and the relation of the individual to other individuals defined as the state. These dual relations mean that the founding of the state will also bring with it the founding of the church. A key point to make is that for Mendelssohn, the traditional types of arguments employed by Aquinas to justify the theocratic state are not available because Mendelssohn is not interested in arguing for the universality of the Christian religion as his predecessors had been. Indeed, for Mendelssohn, the problem lies in the fact that his only hope for justifying Judaism to the Christians among whom the members of his oppressed community resided is to emphasize civil society as essentially secular and tolerant. But if this project is successful, it might undercut the very authority of Judaism that Mendelssohn is trying to establish. Let us turn to the first, first to the need, of, need for religion as Mendelssohn saw it. For Mendelssohn, then, value is not actually independent of religion, but is rather revealed through it. This is not to say that doctrinal religion necessarily reveals the truth of morality, but that each religion, in its own way, functions as a guide to the good for its believers. Mendelssohn argues that we require the church to guide us to, to the good, but that all religions can do this with equal success. What remains common to all is the requirement that religion give us access to value. This is also the sense in which Mendelssohn distinguishes between enlightenment and culture and argues that when enlightenment science comes in conflict with the transmission of values, it should step back and, quote, prefer to indulge prejudice than drive away truth so that is so wound up with that prejudice. End quote. This sort of rationalism is thus quite different than Spinoza's, and we might call it immediate rationalism. We turn now to the founding of the state. As for Kant, for Mendelssohn, the state of nature is already moral, but must rely on um, beneficence rather than law to keep people in line. Mendelssohn casts the issue in terms of perfect, perfect and imperfect duties. The human, humans have a perfect duty to preserve themselves, but they have an imperfect duty of benevolence as, is, as, it, as it is dictated by divine law. Because Mendelssohn takes it as axiomatic that humans are better off living together, quote, 
men may think it proper to renounce their rights of independence by means of a social contract and to transform their imperfect duties into perfect ones by enacting uh, and by the enactment of positive laws, end quote. That is, imperfect duties of benevolence can be turned through contract into perfect duties or laws of the state. By entering the social contract, the individual thus cedes the right to decide the particulars of benevolence to the authority of the state. The state thus gains control over individual's power in exchange for safeguarding the individual's survival. The important thing to see in this operation of the social contract is that it too, like Spinoza's contract, is not transformative in the sense that, it does not con that the contract um, is not transformative. Um, rather, the contract is formed on the authority of our knowledge of natural religion, of good and evil, which we are brought up to believe already. Thus, the state of nature is, for Mendelssohn, not a pre-moral place, but already moral. The social contract merely formalizes what is already there. If it is not reason which is the occasion for the birth of the state, we may infer that it is survival, as in Spinoza and Hobbes' conception. This makes the social contract merely instrumental. Modern social life thus has two poles, that of the state which, in the interest of survival, enforces certain benevolences as laws and that of natural right, or inherent duties which are separate from the idea of survival. It is Mendelssohn's hope that religion and the state will not come in conflict, but when they do, it is important that the state recognize its limitations with regard to moral convictions and take a backseat to religion and moral convictions. Thus, as in Spinoza, the social contract is essentially unconnected to human ability to reflect on the good. For Spinoza, this was a good thing, but for Mendelssohn, it presents a problem. The problem arises because Mendelssohn does not think that people can or should be left to develop their own ethical norms. This ambivalence about civil society can also be seen in Mendelssohn's contemporaries, Edmund Burke and the slightly younger Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, to name only a few who were concerned about the new freedoms civil society had to offer. For Mendelssohn, then, humans require guidance about which values to embrace, but the state which they live under is by virtue of its limited mission prohibited from providing any. Further, since the state retains all cohesive authority to ensure survival, the guidance that religion provides can have no coercive force itself. Quote, the only rights possessed by the church are to admonish, to instruct, to fortify, and to comfort, end quote. The church has only moral authority. Nor may the church or the state interfere with the convictions of the citizens. Quote, principles are free. Convictions by their nature permit no coercive or bribery, coercion or bribery. They belong in the realm of man's cognitive faculties and must be decided by the criterion of truth or untruth. End quote. Thus it seems that Mendelssohn generally endorses freedom of belief. What then? Um, when religion, religious beliefs comes into conflict with the law of the state. This is an important question, carries more weight in Mendelssohn's time than it was um, when it was considered a matter of state security or survival, which type of Christian one it was. Indeed, in Mendelssohn's Berlin, as in the rest of Europe, Jewish emancipation did not occur until 1812, well after Mendelssohn's death. Mendelssohn's invocation of tolerance in religious matters thus had a very real political implication. The test case of freedom of belief, as Mendel conceives of it, is Judaism's persistence. 
philosophically, the conflict arose when Mendelssohn was targeted by a number of scholars who wanted him to uh, make good on his rationalism and admit that as a more spiritual religion, Christianity was also more rational than Judaism. They wanted Mendelssohn to convert. This dilemma, which Spinoza had not bothered to address because he did not care for the continued existence of Judaism as a cultural form, weighed heavily on Mendelssohn. And the second part of Jerusalem presents his response to his critics. <laughs> Though one might reject the assumption that Christianity is more rational than Judaism, Freud, no friend of religion, thought that Judaism was actually more intellectual because it refused to represent God, Mendelssohn did not and accepted the premise. His first move was to distinguish between rational and divine truth, and rational or divine truth, and contingent or sectarian truth, both of which flow from God. Quote, the propositions of necessary truth are true because God represents them to himself in his intellect, the contingent because God approved them and considers them to be in conformity with his wisdom in this and no other way, end quote. So he's trying to, um, so two versions of uh, sort of Leibnizian conception of, of the universe here. Necessary truths are founded upon reason, quote, on an immutable, coherent, and essential connection of ideas according to which they either presuppose or exclude one another, end quote. Historical truths, quote, must be explained by themselves, by means of the senses, by those who are present at the time and place of their occurrence in nature, end quote. They require authority to underwrite them, pass them down through history. These truths are what make each religious tradition different. So these contingent truths are what make each uh, religious tradition difference. different. The key point for Mendelssohn is thus to keep belief in historical truth separate from belief in divine truth. That is to keep faith related to, but independent of rational and hence universal truth. But it is this distinction which Mendelssohn's opponent wanted to collapse in order to see Christianity and Protestantism in particular as the true universal religion. Mendelssohn supports this distinction between faith and truth by limiting the reach of reason, effectively following Spinoza in asserting that not all are capable of grasping divine truth. Thus, while Mendelssohn believes that we can all have access to eternal truths of God without the evidence of miracles and revelation, he does not believe that knowledge of these truths will necessarily lead to an advance in human, humanity more generally. Quote, the human race is in almost every century child, adult, and old man at the same time. Though in different places and religions of the world, progress is for the individual man, end quote. Thus, while we can come to realize our rational powers over a lifetime, the wise cannot pass down their knowledge of divine truth to the younger generation. Mendelssohn thus flatly denies the Enlightenment conception of historical progress, which had been championed by everyone from Vico to Voltaire, to Vico and, from Vico and Voltaire to Kant, Lessing, and Herder. Mendelssohn's denial of phylogenetic progress means that education is of central importance since it must be repeated each generation. It comes as no surprise that Mendelssohn sees education as a central function of the church. But education is not only for the young. The church must also seek to maintain the moral order among adults. Mendelssohn understands Judaism as a series of rites which counteract idolatry. Quote, in order to remedy these defects, the lawgivers of the nation of Israel gave the ceremonial law. Religion and moral teaching were to be connected with men's everyday activities." End quote. Mendelssohn writes, quote, 
Men must be impelled to perform actions and only induced to engage in reflection, unquote. So a distinction between you know, certain obliga obligatory acts or, more, or religious obligatory acts and reflection, which has to remain free as well. Um, religion fills the normative space left open between individual reflection on the true and the good and the laws of the state, but cannot be assimilated to either, as other Enlightenment thinkers uh, insisted it could be. In this context, context, it is then evident why tolerance is so necessary a concept. If, according to Mendelssohn, all religions are essentially equal and none have a special status with regard to the authority of the state, any religion is able to give advice and to educate its followers. Variations in how different religions go about this requires tolerance. The point is to see that for Mendelssohn too, reason cannot provide all the answers because humans will always be engaged in wrong thinking. So that reason does not stand a chance of overcoming the affects all uh, once and for all. We will always need moral education through the church. The fact that moral education comes in different forms, but with the same purpose, means that it is a matter of political indifference which church does the educating, since all, educa since all religion aims at the same rational goals of love and justice. Tolerance by the more powerful church of the less powerful ones is thus called for. The idea of tolerance, as I have noted before, cannot be a matter of simple agnosticism of values on the part of the state, since the state much must judge which religious practices further and which hinder the prospects of the continued civil order. This judgment can only be made from a contentful conception of humanity, which brings together civil society and a concrete conception of what humans need. A tolerant state must thus recognize the different sectarian systems of belief uh, a tolerant state must thus recognize that different sectarian systems of belief can and do yield the same normative outcome. To recap Spinoza and Mendelssohn's position, we can say that both see the human capacity for reflection as limited in most cases. Religious, religion steps in to fill the vacuum and to provide values which will facilitate social interaction. But because values in institutionalized religion do not receive a fully rational foundation for most people, but must rely on faith, agnosticism about the true structure of values is called for in the individual. The problem in both Spinoza and Mendelssohn is that tolerance of different religious practices between individuals is not the same as the state's tolerance of different religious practices, because the state is the final authority concerning actions. The individual can only be tolerant of other individuals because the state has already taken over the responsibility of determining which practices do and do not endanger the well-being of all. Okay, so there's a difference I'm positing here between tolerance between individuals and the tolerance between the state and individuals. And this seems to me a central, uh, a central problem here. <laughs> We finally come to Kant. In Kant, all, these, all this receives a significant inflection, and I will not have time to discuss each transformation. What is interesting in Kant for our purposes is a deeply ambivalent way Kant conceives of the problem which results in the need for tolerance, human finitude. My aim will thus be to show that Kant's notion of tolerance despite his protestations is really twofold and thus significant work for Kant, as for the other two authors being considered here. Kant's rationalism commits him to maintain both conditions mentioned at the outset, the possibility of full rational reflection and the capacity of such reflection in each member of society. 
for Kant, then, there is, in principle, an identity between rational reflection on the part of the individual in moral matters and the rational laws of the state. The state's authority is thus, in principle, again, supplied by each member of the state and, as such, fully reconstructable. Tolerance for Kant um, thus becomes an expression of intellectual laziness on the part of the individual who does not bother to reflect deeply enough. Like Spinoza, Kant does not use the term tolerance much, but when he does, he uses it in the pejorative sense. For instance, in What is Enlightenment, Kant contrasts the prince's duty, quote, not to prescribe anything to human beings in religious matters, but to leave them completely free with the lesser concession, which goes by the, quote, arrogant name of tolerance. The term tolerance is generally reserved for the context of religion in which sectarian strife is seen as intolerant. The reason for Kant's disdain is readily apparent. Kant's, un Kant underst Kant's understanding of ethics depends on the idea that the good and its instantiation in, um, instantiation in respect and autonomy are available to everyone. The whole structure of Kant's official ethical theory is based on this thought. The moral philosophy of Kant is a systematization and a critique of the possibility, but by no means an extension of common moral precepts, uh, which we all share. Kant tells us nothing new in his ethics. We all, his audience, already know everything there is to know about morality and are fully capable of exercising moral judgment. In this sense, then, since everyone is equally capable of being moral, we should not have to tolerate each other, but, rather, but should rather respect each other by reflecting on each other's positions. The idea of autonomy, which is central to Kant's account of human moral agency, also implies that matters of religion are purely personal and that there is no one who could legislate this matter for us. Here, the Lockean argument for tolerance, which relies essentially on the idea that we cannot know enough about God to legislate for others how to worship him, is turned on its head. Kant agrees that we can know little about God, but this is not because our knowledge is not sufficiently advanced, as, Locke argument, as Locke's argument implies, but rather because it is systematically impossible to have knowledge of things beyond our senses. That is, there's no knowledge of God. Since there's no way to know anything about God, the question of God's particular attributes, let alone the necessity of certain sectarian affiliations, becomes a moot point. For Kant, then, there is no need for tolerance, both because each individual has absolute authority to pursue her own life projects, as long as they remain within the limits prescribed by the state, and because there is just no fact of the matter with regard to opinions about religious matters. This excludes tolerance in the sense that we could say, quote, I mean, I'm imagining this, um, I know that she's wrong about that, but I'll just let her believe it because it makes her happy or gives her life meaning or something like that, sort of a typical condescending kind of remark, you know, designed also um, to be helpful, right? And we say, you know, let them, let them believe it, so it's okay. The idea, of, the idea of tolerance also suggests a mismatch of power relations. In it, one group permits the other to believe certain things, even though it has in its own power, it has in its power, uh, it has the power to force them to believe or at least to do otherwise. This is clearly the position to which both Spinoza and Mendelssohn's view of the state gives rise. Both rely on the state knowing more than the average citizen. In, Spinoza's, in Spinoza, religion is explicitly a means of controlling the masses, while in Mendelssohn this is merely implied. There is, however, one positive reference to 
tolerance in Kant's work. It appears in the Opus Postumus under the title Über die Pockennot on the Pox Threat, in which Kant weighs in on the question of Pox vaccination. Um, I will read the passage, it's uh, in German. Um, here, Kant uses the term tolerance to describe a basic form of human reciprocity and dignity. That is, the act of turning the other cheek to tolerate one's transgressions is here considered basic to morality itself. This usage points to another possible sense of tolerance. Tolerance not as an absolute ethical virtue, but as one which is instrumental in moving society to a state in which tolerance is no longer needed. The above passage even alludes to this when Kant writes that, of, um, that such tolerance is galverdienstlich, even useful, if it does not actually encourage bad behavior. Thus, tolerance might be seen as an instrumental attitude which encourages good behavior in others. It is thus a willingness to overlook the weakness and immaturity of others. If we take the term in this way, we can see the connection between tolerance and historical development, which for Kant, unlike for Mendelssohn, is central to the hope for a moral world. In this second historical sense, tolerance is necessary as a pragmatic attitude if we are to achieve a better world. I will now connect this interpretation of, of tolerance to Kant's well-known formulation of the human being's inherent unsocial sociability. Humans, quote, tendency to come together in society coupled, however, with a continued resistance which constantly threatens to break the society apart, end quote. In this famous passage from the famous essay, Idea for Universal History with a Cosmopolitan Purpose, Kant gives a Rousseauian interpretation of the march of history, though he ends up with a more, on a more positive note than Rousseau does. Kant puts the conditions for the development of humanity thus, quote, the first true steps are taken from barbarism to culture, which in fact consists in the social worthiness of man, end quote. In another essay, Conjectures on the Beginning of Human History, Kant glosses the above thought about the social worthiness of humans, um, remarking, quote, the first incentive for man's development as a moral being came from his sense of decency, Sitzamkeit his inclination to inspire respect in others by good manners, guten Anstand, i.e. by concealing all that might invite contempt, end quote. The point here is that human activity becomes properly human when it evinces the proper sense of mutuality. However, as Kant is also quick to point out, this sense of mutuality is by no means always determinate. The proper understanding of a moral judgment um, a reflection on universality or the moral law still lies hidden from humanity. That is, what an actually good moral judgment is, 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 uh, is something we only gradually come to. Thus, we require a sense of decency or of human worth um, in order to live together. Decency, in this sense, is really quite close to the second sense of tolerance, which I'd like to introduce. It is the willingness to behave towards others in a way that overlooks certain deficiencies in them. From the perspective of moral development, we can thus see that what previously looked like arrogance might be a necessary element in the development of a just society. As finite beings, not yet fully capable of rational reflection, we may indeed have to suspend judgments about how things should be, even if we are quite convinced of our own principles. The point can also be seen in Kant's description of the transforma uh, transformation of natural inclinations into moral capacities. I quote again from Idea for a Universal History with a Cosmopolitan Purpose. Quote, 
All man's talents are now gradually developed, his tastes cultivated, and by continued process of enlightenment, a, being is a beginning is made toward establishing a way of thinking which can with time transform the primitive natural capacity for moral discrimination into definitive practical principles, and thus a pathologically enforced social union is transformed into a moral whole." Unquote. According to Kant, it, it takes time to transform our natural capacities into moral ones. Not because we do not always have these moral capacities, but rather because it takes time for these capacities to, to completely take hold of us. When we tolerate others in that sense, we tolerate not their inferior status, but we tolerate their inconsistencies in applying those inherent rational rules which we believe ourselves to, which we believe ourselves to be employing. But, Kant implies, the need to tolerate others should also moderate the vehemence with which we voice our own opinions. Tolerance must be understood as a kind of humility, the knowledge that we might, might ourselves be in need of tolerance by others. Kant voices this doubt in conjectures when he writes, quote, culture has perhaps not yet really begun, let alone been completed. This recognition of humility and the need for tolerance leads to the correct attitude through which humans can engage in developing those sets of rules and principles best suited to abolish the need for tolerance in the first place. The contrast between the first sense of tolerance, tolerance as arrogance, and the second sense, tolerance as humility, is then that the first sense imposes principles, while the second sense acknowledges that while it is necessary to have principles, these principles are always only provisional. The, this sense um, of humility is what makes the second a moral attitude and reveals the first as merely instrumental. So where does this leave us in terms of the state? Like Mendelssohn, Kant believes that the ethical norm, that ethical norms pre-exist the development of the state and that once these norms are sufficiently developed, it, it becomes a duty to enter the state. Kant is not particularly clear on this duty, since on the one hand he holds it to be a rational duty, while on the other hand he asserts that even a nation of devils can found the state. However, the overall argument clearly rejects any claim that the ultimate justification of the state is instrumental, even if it is the proximate cause. The state is thus founded, on ra on ra founded rationally, which for Kant always also means moral, morally. As such, there is no principal split between survival and morality. Any division between the two needs is merely contingent and in the process of being overcome. This is possible because the state is conceived as a guarantor of external rights, that is, as a social organization which will provide space for people to become what they are, namely social and moral beings. It is unclear whether Kant meant the state to be tra uh, transitional, a transitional moment between the state of nature and the moral community, but in either case, the state provides the opportunity to refine one's moral sense. The progress towards moral perfection is made possible by personal reflection, but, and perhaps more significantly, by the gradual development of communal norms. These norms develop, or at least ought to develop, through an exchange of ideas in which different views are put forward and are discussed with a view to improving each proposal, finally getting to the best possible rules of conduct. The public discussion, public, the public discussion instantiates individual reflections on the public level. Such a discussion, especially at the beginning, requires a state which can uphold a certain amount of order amidst the discussion. 
Such order is both a matter of individual humility and tolerance for the opinion of others, and a matter of the objective guarantee that no one's opinions counts for more than it ought to. That is, we should take only rational opinions um, into consideration. It must be the rationality of the proposal, not the force with which it is made, that must count. The state maintains this proceduralism and space for this public debate. But here too, as in Spinoza and Mendelssohn, a distance between citizen and ruler opens up, which requires the ruler to be able to see more clearly which sorts of action can be permitted and which should undermine the state. However, for Kant, this dis distance is only an apparent one. The difference between Kant and his predecessors is that the ruler of the state is only a position taken up by a representative person and could be held by any individual sufficiently educated and rational. And just as any rational person could be the ruler, so too any participant in public debate could restrain herself voluntarily in accordance with those rules which she would legislate if, perchance, she were the ruler. But it is in the breach of rationality that we need each other's tolerance. The ruler must be tolerant of the citizen's mistakes, just as the citizen must be tolerant of the ruler's. This is Kant's radical egalitarianism, and the reason why tolerance, if it is to be a useful concept, must really mean humility before the unfinished edifice, which is the rational state. The Kantian picture of full rationality, I've argued, makes tolerance as a duty unnecessary. However, Kant recognizes that full rationality is not presently available, but is rather an ideal to be achieved. By positing this ideal as attainable, Kant provides a rational reconstruction of historical development all the way back to the founding of the state. Because Spinoza and Mendelssohn do not posit such a strong rationalism, they need the idea of tolerance to function as a substitute for the fuller rational understanding Kant holds out hope for. The need for an appeal to tolerance, as I have argued, is based on the fact that for both Spinoza and Mendelssohn, the individual is not fully self-authorizing in all respects. For Spinoza, the individual is not always rational enough to perform such reflective bootstrapping, while for Mendelssohn, moral progress is tightly linked to cultural transmission of values. And since these cultural transmissions are in some sense contingent, they can warrant no social cohesive rationalism about values. Tolerance, which Spinoza is ambivalent about and Mendelssohn endorses explicitly, is thus seen to provide the glue for different conceptions of values, which in principle might be the same, but which necessarily give rise to differences in belief and social practice. But implicit in this solution, and perhaps in Spinoza's half-hearted stance toward the concept, is the fact that tolerance can only function as a higher order pragmatic value about how to behave rather than as a true point in the eventual convergence of value. The limitations of tolerance also reveals why it was absolutely necessary for the rational project to take, for the rationalist project to take on its more rational form in Lessing, Rousseau, and Kant. Rationalism, is political, rationalism in political philosophy requires not just that some can see the good, but that all can see the good. Only this will allow humans to found a universally just state. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you.